There's one word I'd use to describe my management style, it's very intentional. I do things by very specific design to achieve outcomes of change. You try and punch at the level where you can have impact. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard James Gorman, the chairman and CEO of Morgan Stanley. Today, in the second part of this two-part series, James reflects on both his management style and his relationship with his board, as well as how he nurtures Morgan Stanley's talent pipeline, including the two C's for competency and collegiality that guide his decisions about people. Here again is Vic Malhotra, a senior partner and chair of our Americas region, to lead the conversation with James. Our research would suggest that 72% of the big picture strategies tend to fail for execution reasons. How have you made that vision that you had and others had? What are the key enablers to making it happen? And maybe we can start out with culture and talent and an execution orientation and processes you might have to make sure that things are actually working. I'm always focused on the slope of the gradient. Right. That, that it's moving, it's positive. Mm-hmm. Bottom left to top right. The rate is at six degrees or 15 degrees or eight degrees is affected by external environments, bad luck, maybe trying to do too much or too little. But is it steadily moving in direction? So that's number one is the strategy has to show progress. A lot of banks around the world came out of the crisis. They said, we have to focus on culture. And they give culture tools all over the organizations. I said to our board at one point, Well, that's all well and good, but let's say you do that and the strategy fails and now you're going back to the people who just talked about our culture and you say, I'm sorry, you don't have a job. Mm, Yeah. Okay, well, that's kind of an interesting conversation. So first, stabilize the place by having a clear strategy. Strategy earns you the right to talk about culture. Culture is what guarantees continuing strategic shift aligning to the world around you being open for example a key tenet of any good organization is being open to change that's cultural right having leadership who are capable that's cultural so i was very focused in the early days the very early days on pure strategy in fact we had a meeting of our top 250 executives we used to have every couple of years anyway we had somebody up there who'd been doing some work on strategy how to think like leading 250 people in discussion on strategy. And I hadn't, you know, I was new CEO, somebody had organized this event. And this guy is a professor at some business school. And he's doing, he was doing a good job. But I was in the front row and after a while, I just couldn't stand it. <laughs> and got up in front of the group and I walked to the podium. I said, I'm sorry, I, I have to stop you. I said, you're fabulous, but we can't have you leading a group think around what our strategy is. I know what our strategy is. I'm going to tell everybody. And in 72 words, I laid out our strategy, which was essentially to be the conduit of capital between those who have it and those who need it. That's our job. We don't put our capital to work, so we're not those who have it. We don't need it. We just we facilitate the advisory management distribution of capital from those who have it, those who need it, from issuers and investors, borrowers and savers, that's how And then we took a poll of the group and I think the answer was 
98 or 99 percent, 98 percent agreed, understood and agreed with the strategy at the end of the session. One percent were neutral and one percent didn't agree. Right. That one percent's gone, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) But clarity of message. Then you have a chance. By putting in that message, immediately told the audience, individuals matter. By putting it as a conduit, immediately told the audience, prop is not happening. We're not going to invest proprietary, our capital. So there were some very deep coded messages in there in, in what was, it's actually 72 words that's still sitting on my desk. And I think that uh, clarity of message, a rallying cry, maybe it's more a vision than a strategy. I don't really know. I sometimes get vision and mission and strategy all mixed up because the real strategy happens at the business and capital allocation and so on. But it gave everybody the starting. Then when we started executing around the things I talked about earlier, cleaning up the bad stuff, amplifying the good stuff or the stuff that we need to get bigger in, then you had a path, you had a slope of the gradient. Now you're off to the races. Now we focus on culture. And I asked Colm Kelleher, uh, who was then president with our chief legal officer, Eric Grossman, basically do a world tour and only speak about culture. We changed all our performance reviews. We changed a lot of things to re-energize around the culture that I felt was the core DNA of Morgan Stanley in 1935 that it was founded. We'd earned the right to have that conversation. Up until then, we didn't. We were stable enough. People would keep their jobs. Now they could engage in the culture because it was their home. They weren't tenants. They were now landlords. And I think that shift is a really critical if you're coming out of a crisis. The soft thing, which a board will want you to do, most people want you to do, is jump to how do we make people feel good? Yeah, right. The answer to make them feel good is give them a sense they've actually got a career. Then, then you can do all the other stuff. And, and as you, I'm, I'm fascinated, as you went down that switch to culture, once, you, once you'd stabilized the ship, once people knew they had a job, once people knew they had a future and they were going to be part of that future, as you, as you pivoted to culture, was it a, a broad-based here of 10 things about culture we're going to do? Or did you pick on one or two things that you felt defined the Morgan Stanley of 1935 that you wanted to kind of bring back? No, we, we went all in. We put our values up on the front of every building. Uh, we change our performance reviews. I ask, you know, in our performance things, I ask every candidate, give me five adjectives to describe yourself. That if I talk to your next door neighbor, your kids, your spouse, friends, the caddy at your golf course, whatever. What are the things they would actually say? Not the things you want us to hear. The thing, And I'd say, go. Right. You don't get to think about it. Go immediately. We want a real conversation. Right. Right, right. Don't give us long performance reviews. Tell us one thing you really admire about this individual's performance as a professional and one thing you really think they should try and work on. Not even-handed, Johnny's got these five things and those five. No, boom and boom. And, and it was bringing it really where it came from a position of trust. We're doing this because we want everybody to succeed. You know, one of the words I've, I've used in cultural discussions is belonging. So we set up an institute for inclusion. The problem with inclusion, it reminds me of the old velvet rope lines in the clubs in New York that I'd never get past. Right? The, the cool people are standing there and they're picking uh, the good-looking people or the cool people from the crowd. And I never got picked. I'm like the dorky guy standing in the back, waving. <laughs> yeah, me too, please. Nobody exactly. picks you. I don't want us to have a velvet rope outside the building. I want everybody to feel like they belong. When you go into the room, you belong as much as the CEO belongs 
the guys who serve me coffee and belongs, the security guards at the front door belong. Everybody's just doing different jobs. And things like that that just really drove the sense of we're, we're back to what the founders of this company imagined. Right. So, so there's a sense of ownership and a sense of belonging. And a, a power to like make it palpable. And then when we had a record year, we paid everybody who doesn't get a bonus here a bonus. Every single person in the organization, first time ever. Why? The firm had done great. Well, maybe they had something to do with it, you know? So that it's, you backed it up when, during COVID. We guaranteed everybody their job in February 2020 when it was not obvious what the world was going to be. We said, what, the one thing we can do to take weight off people's shoulders is let them go home at night and say, you know what? I've got my job. We've got our health insurance. We're good for this year. And we did that for 72,000 people. And I said, if that means, I said, you know, shareholders, uh, employees, clients, equal, whatever the old, you know, everybody's three-legged stool, all that stuff. I said, this time we've got a one-legged stool. We're going to look after our employees. Shareholders, if they take a, a hit in the face because we're paying out this comp, too bad. Clients won't be doing well if the employees aren't here. Too bad. We're going to look after our employees. I love it. I love That's it. great. Can we talk about your views and perspectives on talent. How do you think about talent, in maybe in this context of belonging, more holistically at Morgan Stanley? How, do you, how much time do you as a CEO spend worrying about talent at various levels in the organization? Are there, people have different approaches. Some say I'm focused on my top team and they, then I rely on them to recruit and get the right talent in place. Others say, no, I know the top 500 in some way, shape or form. I'm just curious as to how you think about talent in, at Morgan Stanley. Well, Vic, I think it evolves. In the beginning, you've got the team you inherited. You've got a crisis on your hands. You don't go and fire 20 people and you know, bring in your friends that you're comfortable with. In the middle, you're trying to make the engine just better at every level. And, and towards the end of your, your career, which presumably I'm towards the end of my career here, you should be focused on the future. So I, I think about it at many different levels. Every year I do a list of 10 things I want to get done this year. I'm trying to develop the four top executives here. So one of them will replace me. But I also put on the list this year, develop the 10 next most promising next generation executives specifically. So I will now work specifically with them. So it's, it's a whole... And they don't report to you. To do, actually, of the 10. You know, there are 40-somethings. Right. Our new CFO and chief uh, HR officer. So I think, Vic, it's, it's really a grab bag of things that you influence by the way you insert yourself in the debate. It's take rifle shot deep dives to make a bit of noise and take some risk. Process. Every, every company has, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 processes that run budgeting, resource allocation, talent, you know, you, the list goes on. Do you, as a CEO, tend to lean on one or two more than others in terms of your way of influencing the organization to drive in one way or another? Or is, are they all, all equal in your mind? Firstly, you have limited time. So you got to pick your shots. The highest return reward for the company of your time spent on a problem. People want you on everything. So you pick your shots. And by the way, those evolve over time. Secondly, I think of us as like a military organization because we're so big and so global in so many different places, communication really matters. 
So we have an executive committee, which is my direct reports, an operating committee, which is the heads of all the global businesses, a global management committee, so size-wise roughly 10, 20, 50 global management committees, so the head of Japan, the head of media and communications, the head of compliance, and then the top 250, and then the 1,800 managing directors, then the full firm. So where do you insert yourself at each of those levels? Executive committee once a week, operating committee once every three weeks, management committee once every six weeks, top 250 once every 18 months, MDs once a year actually, and the whole firm. And then when you go to each country, kind of follow that pattern. So if I go to the UK or I go to Germany, I'll have dinner with the executive slash operating committee. I'll meet with the managing directors. I'll speak to the office all in the course of a trip. The other big process one I exert myself in, I mean, there are many, but um, the we didn't have a risk committee, global risk committee for the whole company. I chair that. And that's once a month and it's serious work. Then you have things that are more specific. So I chaired the Sustainability Institute since 2013 until last year, the end of last year. But I'm now chair of our Diversity Institute. Hmm, interesting. And I'm trying to send a message to the organization where, yeah. where my time yeah, yeah. is spent. Right. I can't do everything. So you have to give up on certain things. So it's using the vehicles where you can prod the organization to make a statement. I go through all our promotions. I go through the top 2,000 people's compensation. Right, it takes a long time. Right. And honestly, my input on comp on 2,000, it's probably pretty rigorous on three or 400, and then it's looking for anomalies, outliers, trying to understand. Yeah. So I think your, your job is to sort of manage the core budget, promotion, planning, executive committee, risk, audit functions, pick a few thematic things you're trying to move the organization on, right, and then insert yourself sort of at will when it feels right. In fact, if there's one word I'd use to describe my management style, it's very intentional. I do things by very specific design to achieve outcomes of change. You try and punch at the level where you can have impact. Fabulous. Quick questions on top team and top team alignment. You have, in other conversations, commented to me that you've been very fortunate to have had a couple of great CFOs in your time as as a CEO. Are there two or three roles in the organization, not so much people, but roles in the organization that you lean on more as a CEO than others? Just by the nature of our business, I have almost daily interactions with our chief legal officer, our chief HR officer, and our CFO, and the COO, those four functions. I talk to my chief staff at least every day, several times, and head of IR, investor relations, I'm very involved with. So at least once a week with the head of investor relations. So that's the sort of general, and it's, it's less about what the title is and more about what's pressing at that point in time. But in our kind of organization, you know, talent and risk, Stuff is going on all the time in HR and legal. Big risk issues sort of percolate over a course of a month, unless it's uh, an issue. So I I think, you know, every organization based upon the kind of business you're in would be different. You you know, one of the questions that people often ask is, you know, there's a real difference between a team full of great people with great abilities 
but who may not be aligned versus a team that is entirely aligned. We'd love to get a sense of how you encourage that and enable that. It's funny, I was listening to the BBC yesterday talking about the change in management at Manchester United and how they've gone for sort of the superstar with Ronaldo and and so on versus building a real team. And it's a different strategy. It's very Spanish, the model of the Spanish teams, but it's not really the Premier League style, which has tended to build the team. And it made me think about it. I think about it in terms of the two Cs, uh, competence and collegiality. So the competence is... If our top two competitors were looking for the person to fill that job, would you be one of the top three people on the list? So that's competence. You're, if you're not a top three risk manager, a top three CFO, a top three CEO, a top three head of wealth, a top three, you're not on the team. Right. right. You've got to have the competence. You've got to be good. That's table stakes. On the other hand, collegiality, if you can't listen with respect... You may have strongly held views, but be open to others. If you can't engage in a contentious debate where people don't walk out of the room feeling burned, if you can't support somebody when they obviously need a little support, if you walk, I I described it to the board, I said, here's what I want to do. I want to develop a camera with some, you know, neuroscientists, computer scientists, whatever, brain acts, to take a picture of the inside of your head. And you just stand in front of the gates. And on the wall would be your head. And it would have two colors. One color would represent how much is motivated for self and the other for the institution. And they have to be in balance. Right, right. If they're in balance, the gates open. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you don't have a strong sense of self, you will not deal with adversity. Right, yeah. And challenges and setbacks. You have to believe in yourself right. in a challenging, demanding environment. On the other hand, if you only believe in yourself... Go and set up as James Gorman Securities yeah. across the street. You don't need right. to be at Morgan Stanley. You're not Morgan Stanley. The name of the place is Morgan Stanley. Right. right. For a reason. It's not your name. It's not a partnership. Like the law firms have, you know, 20 names on it. We don't have that. No. So that's the test. Do I think somebody comes into this building understanding, yes, we want a strong drive, call it ego, ability to withstand pressure, but at the same time, they know they're coming to work for us. Right. Right. And that's the collegiality. Love it. The two C's, that's going to stay with me. Yeah. yeah. But I'd love to get your top-level sense of how, how do you think about your board? How do you get the most out of your board? Uh, what's your interaction model with them? It's different when you're a new CEO. I was a new CEO, and for two years I had a separate chairman, uh, predece- uh, my predecessor, John Mack, who was wonderful as my chairman, uh, and he stayed two years, and since then I've been combined. So that changes the dynamic. You're now chair of the board meeting rather than presenting to the board. I have tried to do two things. Number one, the competence cohesiveness. Give you some examples on on both. When there's an issue that comes into the room, say we're getting a cyber attack somewhere, I want the board to look at one director as the logical person to step up to the plate. We happen to have the former head of operations number two at CIA on our board. She is the logical person. When something comes in about market risk, about you know payment for order flow and so on, I would expect the board to look at Mary Shapiro, the former head of the SEC. When something comes up about European or British regulations and political, I would expect them to look at the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Alistair Darling. So everybody has a major. I call it majors and minors. It's sort of the C and C. The minor is get along ability. Yeah. Mm. We've had directors who have been on our board very, very few who I felt just didn't understand their role. 
but I hate the idea of inside boards and outside boards, greater than equal boards. So everybody's role changes every five years. Heads of committees we turn over, lead director. And I said, let's sit at a round table. So there's no seating preference. Right. And only at the annual dinner does a retiring director sit next to me and a new director sit next to me. Otherwise, it's completely random. So I ask the staff in the kitchen to put down the names. <clears throat> I don't put them down. But it's very symbolic of yeah. the sense you're all equal. Yeah. Right. And I think that is critical on a board. Right. So that's, that's really how I've tried to make, you know, in board communications, I write them emails every month or so, which are essentially, if they could sit inside your head, here's what they would see. So very transparent, what you're worrying about, you know, the day my dog died, I mentioned that in an email. I mean, because that was my life. Yeah, sure. That's actually what I was thinking about that day. I wasn't thinking about work. So I think it's important to treat them always with respect, obviously, not pander if somebody's got a bad idea and directors sometimes have bad ideas you just say it's interesting but you know what i don't think we're gonna do it right you got to be straightforward right. right rather than wow so interesting let's do some work on it now cut it off politely respectfully i love the fact that you have the the two c's apply as much here as you do to your organization yeah. and it particularly strikes me that not enough ceos not enough chair of boards think forward in terms of what does the organization need in future competencies, and therefore, you know, we need to have the C's on board. So it's, it's great that that's one of your two criteria. I see the board as a tapestry. The perfect director would be all the parts of the tapestry. Yeah. Nobody's got it. So fill the pieces so you've effectively got the virtual perfect director sitting in the room. Just a different part of their body answers the question based on the topic. Yeah. 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 And may I just ask you one last question on board? Transparency. How are you transparent with them without inundating them? I mean, after all, they only spend X number of days as part of, your, as part of the company, in a sense. I, I try and tell them only things that are help shape tonality or are real facts that they need to know. I try and imagine what it would be like if I were them. Now, that may be not, it won't be enough detail for some of them, for right. sure. But you can't solve for all of them. You're solving for what you think the right mix is. And when, you know, bad stuff happens, I think you've got to try and put it in, in or complicated stuff in language they can understand. So when we were thinking of buying Eden Vance, that came up very shortly after E-Trade. We just spent $13 billion. So we'd done Smith Manage years ago. We did E-Trade, bold, middle of COVID, got it done. Two weeks after that, we were working on Eden, Eden Vance. And... The board, you know, thought the E-Trade was pretty gutsy, COVID, do we really know? They supported it. So I went into the board meeting for Eaton Vance. I called a board meeting and said, okay, I'm going to tell you something in a minute, and you're really not going to like it. <laughs> and I said- And I'm sure I, you gave them just that <laughs> smile. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and exactly. I said, and if it were me on your side of the table, I really wouldn't <laughs> like it. And my first reaction would be, James is getting ahead of himself, getting a little cocky. I said, so all of that aside, you, you just have to listen to me with an open mind. Windows open at inconvenient times. Right. It doesn't mean it's a bad window to go through. And then I explained the transaction and everything. And I think that really helped everybody appreciate that I appreciated. You put, what they were you, feeling. I put them in a very difficult position yeah. to have to make two huge decisions in the middle of COVID Maybe regulators wouldn't like it. Maybe they wouldn't approve it. Maybe the media trash us. Maybe the d deals would blow up. Maybe it'd be my undoing because we couldn't implement it. So I think they really appreciated. 
having you treat them with an understanding of the pressure they were under. Yeah, you put yourself in their shoes. <laughs> yeah. And they, you know, we worked through it. They didn't like all of it, but we got there and, and they were great. They were very supportive. Right. External stakeholders. You spend, I imagine, a fair amount of time with regulators, with investors, with analysts. I'll throw customers in there. Perhaps you spend a fair amount of time with your, your customers and clients as well. How do you think about that part of your time? Because again, in that panoply of everything you just outlined, I suspect that's well, as CEO, you're, you're, you are the external face of the firm. And as a re I've been on the Federal Reserve Board for six years. I've just stepped down and I was on the FAC, the advisory council to the full board in Washington for four years and present on that. So that's very time consuming. Investors, in the early years through to probably two years ago, I really carried the water. The last two years, I've stepped back and the team's carrying the water. By the way, they're the future. I'm not. I want investors to know. Right. When I first got the job, I resigned from every organization I was a member of. So you have to try and manage your time consciously. It's interesting, Vic, my chief staff team track all meetings I have, all communications, all emails, phone calls with media, investor relations, internal committees, regulators, politicians, right. Wealth management clients, investment management clients, institutional clients, and then firm clients. And we keep a record that's gone for many, many years, maybe right to the beginning. And it shows every month exactly how many meetings I have. And at the end of the year, I share it with the board. I don't know what it's going to be. Right. They give it to me quarterly, but I don't look at it. I don't try and manufacture it. I don't. And I just say to the board, here's my what I've done. And you should know this because you should know what the CEO spends their time on. And the cadence of meetings changes. In the early years, much fewer client stuff. Now, huge amount of client stuff. Much more regulatory IR media in the early years. Internal, you know, during COVID, huge number of operating committee meetings. We were doing them daily. That was, you know, off the charts, internal stuff. That's now really receded. So you see a sort of a wave effect through time. Right. I think we've gotten a very good feel in all of this as to how you spend your time, how purposeful you are about your time and all of that. Here you are in year 12 of being CEO. How do you manage your personal energy? You know, this, this is an all-consuming job. How, how, do you, how do you keep your energy up? How do you keep motivated? How do you keep excited about this? Well, firstly, you've got in any demanding professional job like yours or like mine, you have family, relationships, friendships, health, hobbies, job, extended family, religion, whatever. Your sort of major buckets in life. At least I can't do them all at the same time. There's some give up. There are some missed events with, you know, the kids in the early years. You know, social types of dinners in New York. I say no to 97 out of 100. People may think I'm a recluse. I don't really care. Because you can't deplete your stock all day long, every day. Right. You have to find, you know, I just had this discussion with our new head of HR who was emailing me from vacation. I said, where are you? He said, on vacation. I said, I didn't think so. He said, but you know, I told, I told you. I said, you don't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I said, do you know what recreation means? He said, what? I said, recreate. <laughs> You're supposed to go away and recreate. So when I go away, I went last week for four days between our earnings and our board meeting because I hadn't really taken a break over Christmas with all the comp and year-end stuff, I 
made no work phone calls, zero. I looked at my phone twice a day, once in the morning. I sometimes put it in the safe, then I look at it at night for an hour. That's it. I think as important as being busy managing being busy is, is managing how not to be busy and give your brain time to refresh and to think. I, I sometimes have an idea that is so exciting. I feel like it's just not, nobody's figured out. The facts are all there. It's like, you know, a Scrabble thing. or right. And you figure out the word, the ultimate seven-letter word at the end of another seven-letter word already on the, on the table. And it's so exciting and so energizing. So I think part of it comes from the thrill of finding things that people haven't figured out right. Right. is very exciting. The second thing is you either draw energy from people or you deplete. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got to recognize that. Everybody's different, got different energy. But ultimately, if you haven't got the energy, you shouldn't be in the job. Right. And you have to be honest about that. Yeah. Right. Because it's too easy to do the job well with low energy once you're experienced. Right. Well, James, this was truly a masterclass in CEO excellence. I, I sincerely believe that. We hope you enjoyed the second part of our conversation with Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman. Thank you for joining us. As always... We'll share a transcript of this discussion on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our extensive library of previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR. You could follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.